telemedicine, I think, just broke the shackles of, of you know, now you're, the geography is no longer as decisive an element. You know, if you're a health system or you're an entrepreneur and you're saying, I want to be a national deliverer of care, if care is only delivered in this thing called an office visit, that's just, you, you, you know, the barriers are enormous. If care is delivered as seamlessly as ordering a book on Amazon, or making a restaurant reservation or a plane reservation, I think the, the degrees of freedom for entrepreneurs to make an impact have gone up massively. Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators shaping the future of health. I'm Logan Plaster. Before we get into this week's episode, just a word about Startup Health's Moonshot Impact Fund. For accredited investors, this fund makes it easy to gain exposure to a diversified portfolio of private health innovation companies. You can find all the details, as well as sign up for an upcoming informational webinar at healthmoonshots.com. Now on to the show. This week's guest is Dr. Bob Wachter, a renowned internist from UCSF and author of the book, The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. This past year, Dr. Wachter became a leading voice in the COVID conversation when he hosted the podcast In the Bubble from the Front Lines. Interviewing Dr. Wachter this week is Dr. Howard Krein, who, in addition to being Startup Health's chief medical officer, is a practicing surgeon in Philadelphia. The two cover a range of timely topics, but most importantly, help us make sense of where health innovation stands today and where it's likely to go tomorrow. Stick around. Once again, it, Bob, it's just such a pleasure to, to have a little time to talk with you. We've we've spoken before, but uh, I'm really excited to, to to hear what your thoughts are on where we are and where we're going. Thank you. Probably my biggest contribution was I coined the term hospitalist 25 years ago, two days ago. So just to show how old I am, a quarter of a century ago uh, was when that all started. So let me ask you, just to, to touch base on that, did you ever think, when you coined it, I always, I always am curious when people make such such monumental contributions. When you coined that, when you start first thought, thought of that, that term, did you ever think that it was actually going to be as big and as important in healthcare um, when, you, when you invented it? Not quite as big. I, I, I thought that the, the model for care at the time, for inpatient care, which was your primary care doctor is responsible for taking care of you in the hospital. That just struck me as undoable. There's a physics problem. You can't be in two places at the same time. What I saw in academia was a different model where people sometimes came out of their research lab for a couple of weeks a year to get CME from their residency. It just neither one of those seemed like the best way to deliver the best care and do it at the lowest cost and have physicians involved in making systems work better. Uh, so I thought it would grow. I mean, I, I, I kind of had in my mind the growth of emergency medicine and the growth of critical care medicine, two fields that had emerged a decade or a couple of decades earlier, where you had generalists become specialists in the site of care. So what seemed odd was the hospital didn't have a specialist who was a specialist in hospital care, but I didn't think it would be the fastest growing specialty in history. There are now 60,000 of these people. And at UCSF, I've, I run the Department of Medicine. I have 900 faculty that work in my department, and about 150 of them are hospitalists now. So it's now far bigger than cardiology or GI or pulmonary, uh, and that I didn't quite envision. Yeah, it, it's amazing. I mean, and as you as you mentioned, uh, hospitalists, every 
every academic center that I know, and actually most even private private uh, um, uh, hospital systems, the, the hospitalists are who run everything. It's who we as uh, subspecialists and specialty uh, physicians count on, um, and and certainly need to uh, to be able to run the hospital. So yeah, certainly been major players during COVID. I think you know that that was I think the things that turbocharged over the last ten or twenty years. House staff work hour limitations. All of a sudden, you, you you didn't have this infinitely expansile group of young doctors being paid below minimum wage, and so you had to figure out who's actually going to take care of sick people in teaching hospitals. And then uh, COVID, you know, has turbocharges as well. You know, hospitals got very busy, and you need to figure out who can be there all day long to take care of them. And then finally, the safety and the quality of movement really m increased the premium on having doctors who live in a site of care and understand the system and try to make it uh, work better. Yeah, let me tell you, that's a perfect transition into into actually COVID, right? In in the last um, what eighteen months, how different has medicine um, become than what we were looking at? I mean, literally a year year and a half ago, um, from what we are dealing with today. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think about the the parts of COVID obviously that have just been brutal and have burned out our our clinicians of all stripes, whether it's nurses or doctors or or everyone, the, the, the financial hit to health systems, whether it's primary care or hospitals has been very real. The kind of enduring effects, I think, are a few. Uh, one is my hospital, like many others, immediately went to a form of healthcare martial law, uh, you know, where all major decisions were being made by a small group of people uh, that were part of the command center. And what we did was cut through an enormous amount of bureaucracy. You know what they, the old saying in medicine, what do they call the 99 to one vote of the medical staff? And the answer is a tie. It became clear that we couldn't do that. And yeah. I, I think we learned to be more nimble. It'll be interesting to see how, whether that sticks. I hope some of it does. I think we also learned the value of information technology in some really tangible ways. To me, uh, people always think it's going to be AI or something really fancy. Actually, the biggest thing that happened in terms of technology, obviously, was telemedicine was one. That was clear. Uh, that clearly hit its tipping point. But the second was dashboards. You know, I think one of the reasons that people are so unhappy about the first 10 years of digitization of healthcare has been if you're a practicing clinician, you spend all of this time inputting information into the computer and you get so little useful intelligence out of it. It'd be like if you spent all your time feeding and changing your baby and they never smiled at you. It would be like, you know, eventually you get pissed at them. And uh, that's the way we feel about our EHRs. With COVID, I think we learned that we need to have real time, up to the minute uh, you know, dashboards, information that doesn't make us look at some humongous spreadsheet, but actually takes it and presents it to us in forms that are beautifully visualized, actionable, whether it's for a clinician or whether it's for a healthcare system leader. And I think it was the first time that we kind of understood the power of the data that we have sloshing through our digital tubes. So those to me are the two things that are gonna really have reached a tipping point. Telemedicine and sort of the associated things that happen with telemedicine, which is sort of we've broken the, the sound barrier as it comes to the need for a patient to come into our geographic space in order to deliver them care. I think that's really going to be important, more than just the telemedicine as a visit, but the idea that we're no longer stuck on the idea that care happens in episodic visits in a building that we own. 
uh, I think opens the door to a lot of digital transformation. And the second was recognizing the power of the data that we have in, and we now have it in digital form, but recognizing that you can't just give people massive amounts of data. You actually have to process it and give it to them in forms that are useful and interesting and actionable. Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you how, so being that um, COVID helped usher in telemedicine and hopefully the, the power of the dashboard and the power of, 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 uh, of some of the, the information that we can collect in EHR, how, how do you think COVID, um, or I should say, how quickly did COVID change our, our ability or our willingness to accept that? Do you think that if COVID hadn't hit, um, how long do you think before telemedicine would be accepted? Do you think it was something that was right around the corner or did no. COVID really supercharge it? No, I think it was it was five years away, maybe. You know, things are always slower than you, th you always think they're around, the, you know, value-based care has been around the corner for 20 years. Uh, you know, it, it happens in drips and drabs and sometimes requires something catalytic. The reason I say I, it was five years away is I think the technical capacity clearly was there. We know that because, you know, in a month we turned it on and we all went from 1% to 70% televisits. So, so we clearly had gotten past the obstacle of, you know, bandwidth and Zoom or, or, or whatever system you use to do telemedicine. But the cultural acceptance among doctors and the cultural acceptance among patients was both low. Uh, and so it, they needed to be able to do the tire kicking and try it out and find out that Turns out both patients and clinicians liked it fine. And maybe even most importantly, the bureaucratic regulatory and payment obstacles were very real. And I don't see the mechanism by which they were going to get taken down all that quickly. And what COVID did was it turbocharged that, you know, very clearly the rules around HIPAA had to get transformed. The rules around payment parity had to get transformed. The rules around requiring state-by-state -state licensure to do telemedicine had to get taken down. And of course, once they're taken down, they're really hard to re-erect as everybody has now experimented with telemedicine and most people like it. So I can't see those things having happened all that quickly because there were a lot of counter forces to payment parity and to some of the regulatory changes. So I think it probably would have happened, but it would have been, you know, when would have gone from 1% to 2% to 4% to 6%. I have to state a conflict. I'm, I'm on the advisory board for Teladoc, but just you know, there certainly were players there like Teladoc and others who were beginning to see the opportunity and were carving out niches. But I don't think telemedicine as a mainstream way of delivering care, I think that was probably at least five years away. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. Um, so from a from a health innovation standpoint, what does that do for, you know, uh, Again, we're, you know, this this fireside chat is really um, for our entrepreneurs, and I'm trying to um, share with them what changes from the healthcare innovation standpoint. What does that mean for them? Uh, for easier access, easier acceptance. Um, where, where do you think that changes, and does it put our entrepreneurs in a better position? Yeah, I think it does. Um, I guess in a, a few ways. One is that when the unit of care, the way, whether it was preventive care or, or acute care, when the unit of care had to be that people had to, you know, schlep into a place, park, go to an office, read the Reader's Digest, wait for the visit, uh, or go to the emergency room, that was always going to be a constraint around entrepreneurialism. 
because the you know the startup costs and the regulatory barriers to building those buildings and renting those offices were always going to be quite high. So telemedicine, I think, just broke the shackles of of you know now your the geography is no longer as decisive an element. You know if you're a health system or you're an entrepreneur and you're saying I want to be a national deliverer of care. If care is only delivered in this thing called an office visit, that's just, you, you, you know, the barriers are enormous. If care is delivered as seamlessly as ordering a book on Amazon or making a restaurant reservation or a plane reservation, I think the, the degrees of freedom for entrepreneurs to make an impact have gone up massively. And I think we're beginning to see that. I think it, it's all conflated with a whole bunch of additional trends that really are opening up the box of uh, uh, for to to entrepreneurs, I think we've gone through the first stage of digital disruption in healthcare. Not all that disruptive, but the first stage really was the implementation of the electronic health record. You know, in 2008, fewer than one in ten doctors, fewer than one in ten hospitals had an electronic health record. A decade later, fewer than one in ten did not. So the first 10 years of digital transformation healthcare was the implementation of these big monolithic enterprise systems which don't really provide any opportunity for entrepreneurs because you just have to be, you know, you have to be an Epic or a Cerner to have the capital and have the expertise to build such a thing. But I think we then have reached a second stage, which I, I frame as the post EHR era, where it's become clear that as valuable as these systems are to be kind of your foundational enterprise system, they only go so far. And they are a whole lot of things they just don't do that and and probably won't do or won't do very well for a while because not what the companies were built to do and as healthcare becomes more consumer focused more of it's delivered from people's homes uh enabled by telemedicine but all sorts of other digital connections not just telemedicine as a visit equivalent but data that's being collected from sensors and are streaming somewhere i think the you know the degrees of freedom there are massively increased the ability of a single company to own that entire digital landscape goes way, way down. More and more of the, the game really becomes how do you take digital data and process it and build tools and, and, and ways that clinicians can do things that they couldn't do before, or patients could do things for themselves that they couldn't do before, just becomes a much more interesting, vibrant, dynamic, and a non-monolithic environment. Telemedicine is a piece of that. But I don't think it's the whole ball game. I do think the acceleration of telemedicine and dashboards and sort of understanding the kinds of care that can be delivered when patients can't go to see the doctor. That was what COVID did. COVID said, all right, we're going to take the main way that patients get care and we're going to make it largely impossible or, or at least potentially too dangerous. A healthcare system, what are you going to come up with to deal with that circumstance? And it turned out, as unnimble as we are, it turned out we were pretty nimble. And a lot of the nimbleness was in the kind of entrepreneurial startup space. So I think it accelerated all of that by, you know, by half a decade, probably. It's still a hard way to make a living. It's still the incumbents have a, have a lot of real advantages. The EHR companies, by owning the data and owning the desktop, have a lot of real advantages. But I don't think those advantages are quite as decisive as I would have thought they would have been two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you: Do you think, as we move into this new this new phase of medicine, is there been a hit on quality, or is it improved quality of of, of healthcare? 
Nobody has a data-driven answer to that, so I'll give you my impressions, which are probably as good as anybody's impressions. Um, and the, the answer is, I think it's probably been neutral. Uh, I, and I think it probably will be for a while. I think ultimately it will be better for quality because you know, for every patient that is harmed because they chose to get care by some let's say fly-by-night organization that is easily convenient because it's on their phone, but yeah. the quality of the docs or the information isn't all that good. There will be other patients who have access to doctors or data or algorithms or specialists um, that they simply could not have access to before. And the patients will be in a better position to do comparison shopping in a way they couldn't do before will be in a better position to get good information about what the right, you know, maybe they don't need to see a doctor, maybe they can manage their own problem and will be in a position to do that more effectively. And that's gotta be good, you know, that it's all tempered with the possibility that they will, you know, there was something actually quite nice about the old system where they had to go see a credentialed physician in an office or go to a hospital that was certified by so-and-so certifying organization certainly not a perfect guarantor of quality and safety we know that because there was a lot of bad quality and safety sure. but at least you know there's a bar above which those settings have crossed once you've democratized this the possibility of getting fantastic care is great and the possibility of getting crummy care is great too and i you know the analogy is my wife writes for the New York Times. When everybody got their information from the New York Times, you were pretty confident, or from CBS, you know, Evening News, you were pretty confident of the quality of the information that the person who's writing the article is a well-qualified journalist. You know, now all bets are off. And the information I get off Twitter, I love Twitter. I think I'm getting incredible information, much broader than I would have gotten previously. But I'm a decent connoisseur of the information. I can also get information that is incredibly unreliable and often just plain wrong. And the ability of any of us to make to discern which is which is going to become harder and harder. And medicine is going to be just like every other industry where we democratized it. People have access to more great stuff and more access to crazy stuff as well. And it's going to put more onus on people to figure out which is which. And you know, so in that way, I think quality will both go up and go down depending on how discerning a consumer you are. Yeah, isn't it interesting? And that's sort of what has happened, as you mentioned, with the news. Um, brings me to to sort of the next point of uh, you know when we talk about COVID in how politicized and um, and how much discussion is around what's the right thing to do to 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 handle a pandemic like this? Is it masks? Is it vaccines? Is it need, right? And I think that people are able to go onto Twitter or in, onto uh, different news sources and find whatever information they want to support almost any um, rational or irrational um, uh, decision that they want to make. Yeah, it's a, it's a fast, you know, I mean, if this wasn't so terrible and tragic, it would be fascinating. It probably is a little bit of both. And it, it has happened at a time where we have democratized information, where there is a important political thread in the United States, at least, that questions expertise, that sees expertise as being on the same gene as elitism and people who don't really care about people like me. And that explains a lot of the politics. And, you know, it's a pluralistic society and people can make decisions in any way they want. Uh, but you know, science is science. One of the things about 
COVID is that the science evolves so quickly that if you're skeptical of it, there's plenty of room to say, but you told me that last month and now you're telling me something different. I mean, I'm pretty good at this. I follow it all the time. I told people in June that we could look at COVID through the rearview mirror because that was a perfectly reasonable assumption at the time before Delta became a thing. And so, you know, I, I just saw a paper come out uh, in Stat News that Helen Branswell, who's a wonderful reporter for Stat News, interviewed 20 or so public health COVID experts. I was lucky enough to be one of them. And she asked a whole bunch of questions of, you know, would you go to a restaurant indoors, outdoors? Would you, you know, send your kids to school without a mask? Would you go to the gym? And it turns out we were essentially 100% in sync with each other. Now, that's possibly just groupthink, and we're all wrong. Or it basically says, yes, there's some areas of real controversy here. You know, do you give boosters after six months or eight months? And do you, you know, do you give, if you got Pfizer, do you get Moderna? You should get Pfizer. Those are areas of real controversy. But the fundamentals of do you need to wear a mask indoors? Should all the kids be wearing masks in schools? Should you get vaccinated? Are not debatable at the level of some reasonable sense of a qualified scientist. But, you know, if you're on Facebook and you are, you know, are predisposed to an alternative point of view and distrusting of expertise, you can find more than enough things to confirm your skepticism about almost everything that any of us might say. And of course, there's a market for that. If 30% of the public believes in that, and that's how you make your money through clicks, then there's sort of a symbiosis between putting out bad information and finding that to be a good thing from a from a kind of capitalistic point of view. So we've gotten ourselves in a pretty bad pickle when it comes to things where the science is pretty clear, whether it's how you deal with COVID or how you deal with climate change. And I actually have no idea how our society gets out of this uh, thing. I too have been shocked by the politicization of masking, the politicization of vaccines. But at some level, the thing that's shocking is that we were shocked. <laughs> Because, you know, if we've watched the, the, the way our society has gone over the past 10 years, it should not have been shocking. Yeah, it should not have been shocking. And you may, the thing that actually, which I'm still shocked at, and, and I shouldn't be, is um, how uh, prevalent the, the two views are. That it's not just a, a small subset of people or a small subset of the country that um, believes that either masking is not needed or vaccines are not needed. But... I mean, you're, you're rounding, you know, close to 50%. I mean, it's, yeah. it is a, an astounding uh, number to think that uh, all the people I surround myself with were who you think were sort of most of the country uh, is really uh, almost the minority in the country. So it's, yeah. uh, it, yeah. it's, a no, it is, it is, it is, it is absolutely astounding. You know, COVID's a toughie because it was a novel virus because the science was going to change and because the risk of bad behavior, whether it's not getting vaccinated or not wearing masks is sort of is delayed and probabilistic. So I've said to people, COVID is a really bad teacher. What's a good teacher? My kitchen stove is a good teacher. You touch it, your hands going to hurt like hell and you will never do that again. If you don't wear a mask or you don't get vaccinated, chances are you're going to do fine for a while, maybe for a long period of time. If something bad happens, you may not even be able to attribute it to any one act or, you know, that you engaged in, that you went out to a bar and weren't wearing a mask, whatever, whatever it was. And so if you are predisposed to not want to do the thing and nobody wants to wear a mask and nobody wants to get an injection in their shoulder, 
you can have a lot of confirming evidence out there that these things don't matter that much because of this sort of idea that if it's if it if it was a bad call, it will probably be delayed and it is somewhat probabilistic. So you're going to get away with bad behavior for a considerable period of time. And that's just the predicament of a pandemic and why, you know, this is not novel. You know, I've talked uh, to you know folks who study the 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 great influenza in 1918. And you know, there was a lot of bad behavior. There was anti-masking groups and all of that kind of stuff. It's sort of human to get these things wrong because people, you know, the our human brain was not set up to understand exponential spread. That's not a natural thing. And these sort of probabilistic delayed risks are not something that 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 we kind of process very easily. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's I mean it really is a fascinating um uh, study in human nature. Um one of the things that you mentioned uh, you mentioned the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine. Um uh, everybody knows the J&J vaccine was out there. One of the things that at Startup Health that we always talk about is moonshots. Is is how um back when when uh, when Kennedy called for the first moonshot that all these companies, all these individuals, people came together, they rallied around a cry, a call um to land on the moon. Do you think that what what happened with the pandemic was sort of similar? Do you think that this stimulated and in, and incited a a collaboration between um, the the government between the private sector between the hospitals in a way that hasn't been seen before. Certainly on vaccines, it did. Um, I think in 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 other areas, I don't know, not 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 so much. I mean, I I, I think it's been regional. Uh, so because I think the federal government has certainly was not very good last year, and even this year has been a little bit stumbling in terms of its response to it and we've learned that the public health system is mostly a local and regional phenomena so in my town in san francisco it has been quite gratifying to see the connection between the public health department and the hospitals and the hospitals sort of collaborating in ways that they typically don't they tend to compete with each other but everybody kind of put that down with COVID. i think that was very nice to see now san francisco is decent at this to start with because we lived through the aids pandemic and so kind of learned, you know, we had some muscle memory about how to come together and how to engage the community and how to deal with local activism and all that, those sort of things. Um, so, but I mean, clearly, I mean, Operation Warp Speed should go down in history as one of the great, it truly was a moonshot. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of the last administration, but on this one, I think they got it essentially completely right. They said, we got to get this done. We got to get it done fast. We're going to throw a boatload of money into it. We're going to sort of at a fairly nominal level supervise the private sector, but we're mostly going to give the private sector the resources they need to de-risk this and let them do their thing. And that turned out to be a brilliant approach. Um, and you know, maybe it's a model for other things. You know, is there a solution to climate change? It's hard to think of the vaccine equivalent to climate change. But is there, you know, a private sector solution that that would be benefited by the government just giving the private sector a whole lot of resources, you know, relatively loose reins in terms of the constraints and saying, go at this, you know, potentially. The problem, I think, for COVID is the vaccines are in some ways the exception that does not prove the case. So much of COVID related to the ways that individuals interact made their own personal behavioral decisions 
the way individuals and institutions inter interrelated, the way different institutions, the public health system with the hospital system, all those sort of things. And, um, you know, and it, it, it's much more, it was less about entrepreneurialism and about the business sector and what it does when it's unshackled and more about sociology and psychology and politics and economics. And on that, I think you'd have to give us a D. I just don't think we've done very well. And hopefully there will be lessons that we've learned from it. But I guess I'm not convinced. I think many of the lessons that we've learned from it are things that didn't work. And it's not obvious to me that if we had another pandemic five years from now, we'd do much better because so much of it had to do with the sort of core issue of the politicization of scientific decisions. And unless that gets better, it's not obvious that it will be all that much better. And we'll have a playbook. We'll, we'll, we'll be able to push a button and say, you know, we need PPE. Let's not screw that up. You know, we need to develop tests and get them out quickly. Let's not screw them up. So there'll be some muscle memory of some of the real screw ups that we just weren't prepared for. And I think there will be a pandemic playbook. But in terms of the real fundamentals of everybody getting on board with masks and vaccines and all that kind of stuff, that is so much about politics and sociology that it's not obvious to me that we'll do better uh, coming out of this. I, I wish I felt differently, but I, the lessons don't seem like that they have been learned. Do you, do you think we engaged the smaller entrepreneurs as, 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 um, as well as we could have? Uh, and, and I say, so when we look at it, and really when I was talking, when I was asking the question, I was thinking about some of the bigger companies that sort of stepped up and said, we're going to work on this problem. Um, certainly, I agree with you. I think, that, you know, a lot of the politicization of, of what was going on affected what the responses were. But, but at least I think that it opened up uh, everybody's eyes to the need that uh, healthcare is a very... Um, it's a very tricky um, uh, vertical, right? Uh, you can't do it alone. Nobody can. A hospital system can't do it alone. The physicians can't do it alone. We really need to have everybody involved and everybody's, um, uh, everybody's energy and focus on a problem for it to, to work, right? Because we have the, the, you know, the government and the rules, the regulations, but you also have the distribution, right? There's logistics that go into it. Then you have the delivery um, from the clinicians and the hospital systems. Do you think that we engaged um, the smaller entrepreneurs with the ideas um, and the, the possible solutions for some of these issues as well as we could have, or you think that's also um, on the, uh, hopefully on the, on, the, uh, on the short front of what we need to do in the next few years? Yeah, I think more of the latter. I mean, it, 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 as I think through the fundamental problems in COVID that needed to be addressed and the role of entrepreneurs, um, you know, I mean, vaccines were just too big. If you think about it, you know, yeah. BioNTech was a small entrepreneurial company that ultimately came up with a solution that that you know that got uh, partnered with Pfizer and became a, a key answer but in the rest of it you know there were entrepreneurial entrants into things like PPE generation uh, contact tracing systems testing uh, you know the I mean I people sort of uh, build, I, I saw somebody who was going to develop a new outer garment that you could wear on an airplane that was COVID resistant. And I think most of those came to naught. Most of them, you know, turned out to be sort of too small, too niche. Um, and sometimes they were in an area that even the big, uh, you know, the big guns weren't able to figure it out. So, 
you know, apps for contact tracing, you know, even Apple and Google came together and built something that didn't get used very much because of all the privacy concerns and people's trust with that. It just sort of wasn't ready for prime time. Um, where I saw some really exciting entrepreneurialism was in a, mostly in a not profit space. Interestingly, you know, there was a lot of do it yourself folks online developing COVID, you know, modeling uh, uh, or COVID data uh, dashboards that were really cool and really useful, uh, you know, where they just saw a gap in what the CDC was putting out there and said, I, you know, I'm a data scientist, I know how to do this. And there's publicly available sources of data, and I'm going to go out and put some, I don't know if anybody made any money on that. I'm sort of glad in a way that if they didn't, they, they were doing it because they thought it was the right thing to do and they saw a niche. But I think, you know, when I look back in COVID, I don't see a whole lot of entrepreneurial activity. It was too fast moving. The barriers to entry were too high. And, um, and it was hard even for established companies to make it. I do think in some ways, kind of mirroring what I said before, that COVID will accelerate the digital transformation of healthcare and the entrepreneurial opportunities in that I think are enormous. I mean, you're talking about a fifth of the economy. You're talking about a $4 trillion a year industry that demonstrably does not work well, that has, you know, has gaps everywhere you look, is unsatisfying to everybody, including the clinicians, but certainly to patients, um, is not transparent, uh, does not allow people to get what they need, where they want to get it, which is mostly sitting in their living room, not in a doctor's office or an emergency room. Uh, and by most estimates, wastes about 30% of the dollars that it spends. So the opportunity to make a meaningful difference and also to make a profit seems to me to be immense. Uh, the lesion up until 15 years ago was the system was not digital enough for anybody to do anything with. I was on Google's health advisory board in 2005. And, you know, here we're Google, we, you know, we take over every industry and we make it better and we're smart and we're, you know, pretty, you know, we have unlimited resources, unlimited intellectual capital. And I remember, you know, they put together this pretty high level advisory board and talked about how Google Health would work. And about a year and a half into it, Eric Schmidt came in and sat us down and said, we're disbanding Google Health. This is too hard a problem for us. And I said, okay, <laughs> that's a pretty hard problem if it's too hard for us. And what he was really saying was, if the data is not starting life in digital form, then all of the googly stuff that we can do is of, is of no value. And what we've learned is going in and trying to get data out of paper charts, or to do all the friction that we have to do to take your digital data at Walgreens and connect it to the digital data, such as it is at my institution, connect it to Quest, it's just not doable. Now, every one of the digital giants now is back in in a huge way, uh, you know, unprecedented amount of VC money coming in. And it's basically because in the last 10 years, we have digitized the system. So now the data are digital, but we're still doing almost nothing with it. And, I, I, and, and so the opportunity for entrepreneurs to, uh, to sort of think about and, and, and solve important problems for patients or clinicians or health systems um, when the data are already in digital form, we're just not using it in a way that's, that, that makes it useful, I think is massive. I think it's a really exciting era. And I'm quite swayed <clears throat> when I give talks about the digitization of healthcare, I say there are four stages. The first is you have to digitize the data, done that in the last 10 years. 
The second is you have to connect all the parts. And we've begun to do that. There's still too much friction, particularly third-party tools connecting to EHRs, but we're getting better. The third is you have to make sense of the data. Uh, and the fourth is you have to then build tools and workflows and, and apps and other things that allow you to do what you're doing better. And I said, the reason I know what these stages are is my son works in an industry that has done all these things to great effect. And he'll sometimes argue my industry must be more important than yours because we did this 20 years ago and you're still working on it. He works in Major League Baseball and he <laughs> does he does Moneyball now for the Atlanta Braves. And he can tell you that this guy can't hit a lone outside curveball on Tuesday nights when the wind is out of the Southwest and the pitcher is over six foot two and there's a full moon. And that would take him two seconds. And we can't, you know, we have our big triumph in, 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 in hospitals is our sepsis alerts. That's, that's the one thing that we do and they're wrong 30% of the time. And that's like our big AI victory of, you know, predictive analytics. So we are so far behind, but I think it was because we didn't have our data in digital form until about five years ago. Now that we do, it's very clear that the Epic concerners of the world will not be the entities that then take us to the next stages of making sense of the data and building tools that allow us to take better care of patients and do it safer and higher quality and more equitably and more accessible and do it less expensively. So I think the environment for entrepreneurs has never been better, but it's still, still hard. The regulatory barriers are high. As I tell my entrepreneurial friends, uh, doctors are better lobbyists than taxi cab drivers. Don't expect us to, to just bow over and say, oh, yes, you have a better way. I'm going to stand clear. <laughs> no, there are a lot of reasons why healthcare is much, much tougher than every other industry that you've tried. Yeah. Let me ask you, do you think that because it's, it's interesting, I, I have a friend, a couple of friends in the, uh, you know, that work at the NBA, same thing. They can tell you exactly where, you know, uh, one of the players is most successful at shooting from and, you know, at what time of the night. Right. Is some of that, do you think some of that is that we haven't digitized? And the question is, why haven't we digitized sooner? And is it that um, healthcare and money sort of are almost like taboo, right? You, you don't want to have, um, people don't want to think their, their physicians, their healthcare systems um, are trying to make money on whatever the problem is. Yet it's very acceptable for other industries to do things with a financial incentive. I don't find that a satisfying explanation. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just, I think that physicians are as entrepreneurial as, I mean, we want the right things for our patients, but we're also profit-seeking human beings, we're, 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 which makes us normal. Uh, you know, I work in a not-for-profit healthcare system. If we actually did not make a profit, we would go out of business. You know, we need to make a bottom line to invest in a new building or support our research or our educational programs. And we're competing in a quite competitive city. So I don't think that, you know, I think we have professional motivations that are very real and sometimes get us to do things that that the economists don't really understand because they're not pure profit seeking. But I think uh, in general, I don't think that our uh, sort of non-economic drivers are the reason. I think that the economics of healthcare are very different than other industries because the layer of, of the insurance system creates a, this sort of bizarre set of incentives for both providers and patients that just don't exist in other consumer industries. You know, I go out and buy a Starbucks. I decide if it's worth four bucks. And if I do, I buy it. And same thing if a Tesla and the same thing 
for, you know, for my computer and it's just different in healthcare. So the sort of bizarre incentives and in this intermediary called the insurance industry is part of the challenge, but part of the challenge, it's just really, really complicated. I mean, look how hard it was to computerize hospitals and doctor's offices. And now that we've done it, you know, we did it five years ago. It's not like we then snapped our fingers and all of a sudden we magically developed the analytic capability to make good use of the data. We mostly don't because we thought, you know, UCSF spent a quarter of a billion dollars putting in our enterprise EHR. We sort of thought we were done with our digital investment. Of course, you've just started. Now you have to hire all the people that are going to make sense of the data and do all the privacy thing and educate all the clinicians about how to use the systems in, in new ways. So I think we've been slow and naive and the business case to make the investments in IT hasn't been very strong. Uh, but I think all that's changed. And I think that the EHR era really was the beginning of the breaking of the sound barrier because you had to get that done to be a foundational step to do all the rest. Until you, until you had your EHR, until your data were all in digital form, the Googles of the world or the VCs in the world were going to look at healthcare and say, you know, nothing we can do here. Now that that's been done, I think the opportunity is immense, but doing it did not automatically make it so. You now, this is a whole different stage with whole different opportunities and, 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 and associated risks. So if it took us from, uh, you know, uh, the beginning of medicine to uh, 2020 to get uh, digitized, yeah. Um, what do you, what do you see for, so let me, I want to try to bring in the entrepreneurs and try to figure out how do they really engage healthcare systems, uh, physicians, um, chairman like yourself. Like so, within the hospital system, when you're looking at problems and an entrepreneur comes to you, what what kind of things would you want an entrepreneur to say to you or show you that would excite you and 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 uh, and encourage you to engage? more with uh, entrepreneurs like we have in Startup Health. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I mean, first of all, just a lot of respect for all of you who do this because it's, it's, you know, you spend, a little, you spend a lot of your life getting rejected and I get that. And when you come, come into healthcare, you probably have seen this from other industries, but we're going to, our BS detectors are going to be way out. We're not going to believe what you have on your PowerPoint. We're going to assume that you're giving us hype uh, that 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 is not going to live up uh, that to to the promises we're going to believe that you really don't understand how medicine works and how clinical medicine works and maybe you have a physician advisor on your website somewhere but that you if you come at this from sort of a technological sensibility and you learned about this because you built something cool for real estate or for uh, you know, or or for uh, retail that we're going to assume you'd really don't know anything that's particularly useful. I hate to sound harsh, but that's the way we're listening. <laughs> uh, and that's this is exactly what they need. What, you know, everybody needs to hear, like truly yeah. what, what you're thinking. So thank you for. The, 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 I mean, the second thing I think you have a branch point, which is, are you going to try to bypass the the traditional healthcare system? Or are you going to try to engage with it? And both have pluses and minuses. If you're doing kind of a direct-to-consumer play, you know, a, a digital app that helps them manage their something or your tele-mental health or something, you may want nothing to do with us. I mean, you may want to just go ahead and figure out the regulatory landscape, the payment landscape, and go and go at it um, and see if you can carve out a niche sort of independent of the existing healthcare system. And there's real opportunity there and, you know, and, and, and as well, real risk. Uh, but there are certainly some 
successful companies that have done just that. They've sort of bypassed the traditional system. If you're going at the traditional system and you're trying to sell into us, here's a happy trend that I've seen at UCSF. Until two or three years ago, we had absolutely no front door for you to approach. And, uh, and so you would have approached me or you know your friend the urologist from your you know from your poker game or your golf club or whatever and that person might have sort of said that's a really cool product but that person had no idea how the it system worked and when he or she or you then met our people who run the ehr who are our only it people they would immediately go la 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 i don't want to hear it i'm too busy putting an epic version 3.5-2 or you know you say you've worked out interoperability but my bs detector is going wild because i know we're talking about hundreds of hours of programming time to link your cool app to our system and so i just don't want to hear any of it the good news is that we have gotten smarter and we have come to recognize and we being UCSF, but I think it's probably sort of a general trend that you're going to see, at least in large, well-resourced healthcare systems. We've come to realize that the people that we have who run our EHR, who are magnificent, they have a day job and it's to run their EH, to run the EHR, and they are really busy running it, upgrading it, making sure it doesn't get hacked, making sure that we don't get ransomware, <laughs> this and this and that. Uh, affiliating with a bunch of community hospitals whose first ask is that we put in our EHR in their system, they are too busy to do that. And if, and if they are your first contact, you're dead. And we have under, come to understand that we actually need to have a front door for you because there are a whole lot of problems that we can't solve with our EHR and we need the help of entrepreneurs. So we at UCSF and I think others you'll find, they all have different names, but this is what you wanna look for. We have something called the Center for Digital Health Innovation. And the Center for Digital Health Innovation is basically a digital solution shop that says there are gonna be a whole set of problems that we know we can't solve with our EHR. We are going to charge this group with understanding that problem and then going out and looking at the marketplace and trying to figure out what the right solution is. And we're gonna assume there is not one solution to this problem. It's a complicated, wicked problem whose solution is gonna be one part Epic, one part startup company, one part Amazon or Google, one part something we have to build ourselves, and one part we're gonna to have to then weave all that together, including ultimately weaving it into the EHR, because if it's a solution that's patient facing and they can't get to it from their usual portal, or even worse, clinician facing, and they've got to sign into a different website, non-starter. So the, the big problem that that group is working on today at UCSF is, is, is called uh, uh, the digital uh, patient experience, basically. And it's basically everything about the way patients interact with us, from how we schedule their appointment to how we communicate with them after their surgery to if they have a home glucose monitor or home digital scale, how that information flows into our system in a way that doesn't overwhelm the system to a hundred other use cases that are all about the digital patient experience. And very clear that Epic does not have a solution to that, that there's not one solution. And in that regard, we're very open to talking to entrepreneurs and startups that have good solutions. What are we gonna, so that's the, now the front door. If I got a call from somebody, I would steer you to that group. 
and that group will actually be open to talking to you. Now you're going to have to sell them on the idea that you're a startup that's not going to be out of business in six months, that you're a startup that actually does understand how healthcare works, uh, that the, you've thought about the interoperability issues and that plugging you into our system is not going to be brutally hard. That's better if you can come to us and, and you've already sold into Hopkins or Mayo or Mass General. Of course, that's a problem because they will tell you that would be great if you already sold to UCSF. And I completely understand the circularity of the problem, but it is, you know, we are looking for something of a track record. And if you can accumulate that, that makes their door a little bit more open than it would be otherwise. Yeah. Do you, do you, so at this point, are you, are you sending most entrepreneurs that approach you to that, uh, to that open door? Or are you are you championing any of them for yourself, or are any of your physicians doing the championing? Yeah, the, some of the physicians do that. I tend I'm just too busy. You know, I'm all COVID all the time these days, and I run a you know department with three thousand people, so I just can't meet with every startup and and do that. So to get to me, you've probably already gone through four other people who yeah. you know are friends and family. But yeah, for the average physician, if they get the call, it's in their clinical, you know, they're a cardiac electrophysiologist and it's a new app for exactly for that. You might, I mean, you probably have to know somebody or somehow get an audience with them, but their path now is going to be going to that Center for Digital Health Innovation. I think they've, re clearly the clinician can't do it by themselves. And and the the days where the clinician ran everything and the high profile, big earning doctor who brought the most patients could come to the digital people and say, I'm Dr. So-and-so, This I really wanna have this tool embedded. They're gonna get laughed at. I don't care if they bring in $50 million a year of neurosurgical business, that's, you know, they'll get a listen to and they will, you know, the IT people will say to them, yeah, have your friend call me. I take a look at their PowerPoint, it's fine. But the day where that doctor can determine the tool that we use in our system, the system's just too complicated. They're everything's so interconnected that we just can't afford to do that. Yeah, it's interesting that you just uh, use that as an example because uh, you know in the uh, in the operating rooms we have the same sort of thing. There's physicians who you know the the, the heavy producing physicians, the busy ones, we're always able to say, well, th this is the kind of plating system I want. And now all of a sudden it's like, hey, listen, that's, that doesn't fit into our portfolio. We have a, uh, right. a, a, a better deal, you know, and uh, a structure with this other company. And either you use that or you don't operate here. So yeah, it, of course, it, it's it, a huge change. I mean, it, it really was the environment 20, 30 years ago was one in which, you know, the hospital was there to make the doctors happy. And the hospital still has to make the doctors happy-ish. But I think hospitals and health systems have recognized that the, the cost of customizing everything around an individual physician's whim and preference is actually higher than the benefit of keeping those doctors happy. And they're actually willing to let those doctors go if that's what it takes in order to be able to standardize. You know, the job of the hospital is to produce the best care at the lowest cost. And if every doctor has veto power over everything or their whim is what determines what you buy, it just can't, you just can't do it. And I think healthcare organizations now understand that. Well, I can't thank you enough. And uh, uh, for those who have joined us, thank you. And uh, I hope everybody has a good afternoon. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. 
If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 350 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Rolling Fund in collaboration with AngelList, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.